I'm going to have something to say about my friend Kent Elo at the end of this message. So bear that in mind as we get into our study of God's Word today. We have been in a series on 1 Corinthians for uh, several months now. And uh, we have a little bit of a longer passage than normal today. So what I want to do is like read about half of it and then explain it and then like read the next half and explain it and all of that with a view towards understanding it and then applying it to our life, which is the goal, right? Okay. As long as we're all on board with what we're doing here today, let's begin. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. Here's what Paul says. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Now, he begins by saying in verse 6, all the things I've said thus far, and we could ask the question, what things are you talking about? And he's really talking about everything he said in the first three chapters. And what we have seen is that this Corinthian church was a seriously messed up church. And one of the huge problems that they had was division within the congregation. There were people that were not getting along. And primarily, there were two factions within the church. There was the faction of the church that said, we think Paul's really great. And then there was another faction in the church that said, no, we think Apollos is really great. And the people that thought Apollos was really great would say about the people that thought Paul was really great, they would say that he doesn't, they don't know what they're talking about. And the people that thought Paul was great would say about the people that thought Apollos was great, those people, they don't know what they're talking about. There's something wrong with them. And so there was this back and forth and rah, rah, rah going on. And uh, to our sophisticated uh, ears, this may sound a little bit, um, you know, oh, can't believe anybody would ever be that way. But as you probably are well aware that in churches, there is uh, chronically a problem with people getting along. And there is oftentimes uh, divisions that creep up within the church and unresolved conflicts and all the rest. And so this was going on uh, there in Corinth. And what he has said in in chapter three, we spent a long time on chapter three, was, hey, listen, recognize that these leaders are servants They are workers in the field, and they are going to give an account to Christ himself for what they do, the judgment seat of Christ. And we spent a long time talking about that. And oh, by the way, not just the leaders, but all the rest of us as well are going to stand before Christ and give an account for our life. And uh, he's calling us to get ready for that moment. Don't waste your life. You're going to stand before Christ. Serve in this life in such a way that when you're dead, you're glad you did. We've said that many times. So... He's been building this whole point, and when it comes to leaders, don't be too quick to put them on a pedestal, and don't be quick too quick to criticize them either, because we're not the judge. Christ is. Wait to see what Jesus has to say about them, and really about all the rest of us as well. So just this little truth here, I think, would be so helpful in so many situations in churches and would take care of so much of the rancor that, uh, unfortunately, will often take place. Maybe you've heard of the guy that was shipwrecked on the desolate island. Have you heard about him? Well, let me tell you about him. There was a guy that was shipwrecked on this uh, desolate island, deserted island, and he was there all by himself for many years. Well, one day the ship came in. 
There was a ship. They saw him. They sent a rescue party. The rescue party comes to the shore and they say, hey, we're going to take you back to the ship. He says, wait, before we go back to the ship, I'd like to show you the town that I built while I was here. And they're like, okay. So they go walking into town and uh, he says, hey, see that over there? They go, yeah. They, he says, uh, that's, uh, that's City Hall. Hmm. He says, see that over there? They go, yeah. He said, that's, that's the police station. He says, see that over there? They go, yeah. He says, that's my church. They said, that's your church? He says, that's my church. They said, well, what was that other church we walked by as we were coming into town? He says, that's the one I used to go to. (laughs) If you look in most towns of any size, you're going to find First Methodist Church, uh, second Lutheran church, third Presbyterian church, fifth Baptist church, and on and on. I have a friend who pastors a church that begins with 10th. Okay. So you ever stopped and looked at that and thought, where did first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th, where did these come from? And in most cases, they used to be one church. And then there was a second, and then there was a third, and then there was a fourth. And why was that the case? Because so often they were unable to get along, and there was unresolved conflict within the congregation. What Paul is going to say to us today is that the core problem at Corinth is the same core problem that has uh, plagued the church all these years, and that is pride, spiritual pride divides people. It divides churches. It divides marriages. It divides small groups. It divides friendships. Somehow, somewhere, pride gets in there and it creates a wedge in relationships. And what Paul's going to say today is that this ought not be because it mocks the essence of what Christianity is all about in the first place. And so we're going to get into that. Paul begins by pointing out where all these problems come from. Again, verse 6, he says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. And what he means there, I think, is not go beyond what Scripture calls us to do, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And as I just got done saying, this was going on at Corinth. We had these two groups, the Paul group, the Apollos group, maybe the Peter group, and they're all back and forth towards each other. And he just says, listen, this ought not be, uh, this ought not be the case. And the way that he describes it is that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now that's a fun way to talk about it, isn't it? Pride puffed up. The Greek word there uh, is a fun one. It means Uh, to inflate or uh, to cause to swell up. And I got thinking to myself about the way that we describe somebody that we perceive to be proud. And we'll use words like this. He's so full of himself. Or she's a blowhard. Or he thinks he's all high and mighty. Or she's full of hot air. Or he has an inflated ego and on and on. And I just got thinking to myself, isn't it interesting that 2,000 years ago when they went to describe somebody who they thought was proud, they had this picture of inflation 
uh, being puffed up. And we today sort of see it the same way. It's almost like somebody who's proud. We get the idea they got, you know, one of those, like a pump connected to them. And they just, and they're just all, you know, they think they're all that. That's how we see them. And that was 2,000 years ago. That's the way the same pride, prideful people acted was just that way. It's much like my niece, Abby, who um, my, my sister-in-law, Danny, Abby was sitting on her lap, little girl sitting on her lap, and they were in the car. And Danny caught Abby looking at herself in the rearview mirror. And she watched as Abby sort of went this way and then looked at her face this way. And finally, she said to Danny, she says, Mommy... I like me. Oh, those kids are so full of themselves. Aren't you glad we get over that? Yeah. I think we all have a little Abbey in us, don't we? The church of Corinth had a big Abbey in them. Lots of Abbeys uh, there. And they were puffed up. And I got thinking about this whole puffed up thing. And I, I got thinking about the puffer fish. Have you... Have you ever heard of the pufferfish kids? Are you with me now? The pufferfish. If you go to the aquarium in Chicago, I'm sure that you can see uh, the pufferfish. Well, this is the pufferfish. We have just a picture. That's what he looks like right there. Let me tell you about the pufferfish. I didn't know a lot about the pufferfish. Did a little research on it. The pufferfish is the second most poisonous fish, uh, second most poisonous vertebrae in the entire world. And the, what happens is, it's actually a small fish, but when, it, when a predator comes and wants to swallow it, to eat it, it senses the danger and it puffs itself up by like bringing water in and, and it, it gets big. And as it gets big, the little barbs go out. See those little barbs that go out? And those are all like poisonous on the, on the tips of them. And so out goes the barbs. I thought that was very interesting. The puffer fish makes itself appear bigger than it really is. And the bigger it gets, the more prickly it gets. And so I didn't, it didn't apply to this message at all, so I decided not to use it. Of course it applies. You can see it, can't you? This is exactly what Paul is saying. These Christians, these Corinthian Christians, they, they were puffed up. They were filled with a sense of their own self-importance and superiority. They gloried in their spiritual accomplishments. They wanted other people to see them as being more than they really are. I would summarize it this way. A puffed up Christian is hard to swallow. Hard to swallow. Now, Paul is going to point out what puffed up Christians do to relationships. That's the first thing he says here. Verse six, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Spiritual pride produces an againstness. When we fill up with pride, we get prickly, don't we? And it's hard to be friends with a puffed up Christian. Can you imagine those puffer fishes? Like getting together for a party, they're all, they're all, you know, I'm bigger than you. No, not anymore. Yes, I am. And as the little prickles come out, they can't get close to each other. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah. It's just like, you ever had relationships like that? That's the way that it works. Everything's about status and image and who's perceived as being bigger and better and all the rest. 
That's what was going on at Corinth. And that has gone on in the church from the beginning. A week and a half ago, we had, at our vertical prayer night, we had a foot washing ceremony that the elders uh, um, uh, did, and it was really a sweet time. And so, to get everybody ready for that, because that's not something I think we'd really ever done before, uh, we spent a little time talking about uh, Jesus in the upper room washing the disciples' feet. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, what happened was the disciples are there in the upper room. It is the night; be- it's basically the night before Jesus is crucified, and they're in the upper room, and they are having an argument. There's this huge argument going on amongst the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. Okay, which of them was the greatest? And uh, so one person's saying, I think I'm better than you. Another person's saying, I'm thinking I'm better than you. Well, some commentators believe that because Jesus' response to that was to take up the basin, the towel, and to wash all of their feet, that what they actually were arguing about uh, in the culture of the day was who should be washing whose feet. So can you imagine how that's going? That was the culture of the day you wash your feet because you've been walking on the dirty roads. And it was to wash somebody's feet was to acknowledge that you are the servant and they are the superior. Okay. And so there the disciples are arguing about who should wash whose feet. And so Peter says, Andrew, I think you should wash my feet. Andrew says, I ain't washing your feet. You're my brother. You ain't no better than me. That sort of uh, younger brother syndrome that goes on. I say that as an oldest brother. You know, that little youngest brother syndrome. Going, I ain't washing your feet. You wash my feet. He said, John should wash your feet. John says, I ain't washing his feet. Are you kidding me? I'm the beloved one. And on it goes. You know, somebody says, well, you wash my left and you wash my right. Arguing about who's the greatest. Puffing themselves up there in the upper room. Pride divides people. Pride divides churches. Pride divides small groups. Pride divides marriages. Pride divides families. Somewhere, somehow, self is inflating. And the result is division. And I think we should ask ourselves, even right here on this point, perhaps you are here today and this message is for you from God because there is unresolved conflict in your life. And heretofore, you have thought that the problem was the other person. But in reality, perhaps, you in some way have an inflated self, and the fruit of that is you got your little barbs out, and you cannot resolve the conflict, because resolution always requires deflation and an acknowledgement out of humility that perhaps I am 1% wrong in this. And maybe God will use this message to somehow resolve relationships and maybe even marriages this weekend. That would be great if he used that, use this message in that way. But puffed up Christians, they can't resolve conflict because they don't want to deflate. They don't want to be viewed as less than anybody else. So Paul has something now to say that he's been waiting three chapters to say it. And here it is now. Look at uh, verse 7. He says... Here's the, here's the prescription for the problem. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Friends, he's talking about grace here. Grace. 
The most basic aspect of the gospel is the fact that we have done nothing to earn it and that we do not deserve it. Amazing love, how can it be that you would uh, save somebody like me or whatever it says in the, in the lyric we just got done singing? Could, the Corinthians could never sing that song because they, well, of course he saved us. We're the Corinthians. Look at us. We're good. We're all that. No, 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 no. The gospel does not elevate man. It humbles man and elevates God. It elevates his glory, the glory of his grace in giving us what we do not deserve, which is salvation, full and free as a gift to us from Christ on the cross, dying for our sins. There's none of us that that deserve this. It is utterly of his grace. It is his sovereign grace to sinners, which magnifies our God and minimizes us. Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, being a, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Corinthian Christians, you didn't do anything. You didn't, you didn't do anything. You, you didn't merit anything. There is nothing in you that inclined God to save you other than the fact that he is a loving and a gracious God. Friends, listen, to become a Christian, this is the point that many people stumble over in their Christianity. And maybe this is you here today or their their struggle with whether to believe it or not. Christianity requires a humble acknowledgement that I cannot save myself, that I cannot earn favor with God, that I am not a good person. Rather, I am a sinner in need of the grace of God to admit and to throw myself upon the mercy of God and to believe that Jesus Christ didn't die for me as a good person. He died for me as an enemy of God and as a sinner. And why would he do it? Because he is love. The gospel gives no Christian any room to puff up. How can we puff up? This is what God has done, not us. And to take credit for it is the height of presumption. So many people struggle with uh, coming to Christ because it requires the the last thing that human pride wants to do, which is to deflate. It requires humility and a receiving of the message of the gospel. And Paul says, if all of these blessings have come to you free and clear and on the, on, on, because of nothing that you have done, why do you act all high and mighty like you actually did something to receive it? So do you see what he's doing here? He is turning what he is saying on the core aspect of what the gospel is all about. That man does not deserve it, does not earn it, but God gives it to us graciously full and free. And this is why, friends, that God hates spiritual pride because it is blasphemy. It says something about God and about salvation that is not true. It acts like I have done something to earn it, which is the exact opposite of the case. It's kind of like the scales. If you can think of a scale. Okay, here's a scale. You know where one goes up like this? Can you visualize Okay, here's what the gospel does. The gospel elevates God and minimizes man. God is great, God is big, man is small, man is sinner. 
Spiritual pride does the opposite. It exalts man. And in doing that, it minimizes the glory of God and the goodness of what God has done and his generosity in saving us. And that is why it is a kind of lived out blasphemy and heresy. It is not true. And it creates all kinds of problems in a church and in a Christian's life. So if you, if you received it, why do you act like you didn't? Which leads me to an illustration that I think perhaps the men may be able to relate to more than the women here. Sorry, ladies. Yesterday was your day. Uh, <laughs> man, this is my Valentine's gift to you. Actually, I take that back. I don't even like that style that sounds. <laughs> How about if we just start back over by saying, I have an illustration. I grew up in Cedar Falls, Iowa. It's a town of about, with Waterloo, which they're basically one metropolis. It's about 100 and maybe 25, 30,000 people, something like that. And uh, back in the 80s, which were, of course, the glory years for that town, when I was a teenager, the thing that the teenagers would do on the summer Friday nights, everybody would go cruising. Can some of you relate to that? The old days of cruising. This is back when gas was like 95 cents a gallon, okay? So anyway, uh, what this meant was that we would go out to University Avenue. And University Avenue between Main Street and Ainsboro, that was the cruising, that was the strip, okay? And so maybe if you were friends would say, hey, you want to take a lap? And that meant that we were going out and cruising the strip, so this was, this, was, this was big time, man. I mean, we had, it was summer nights, windows down, music going, hot cars, people parking along the sides, hanging out, music, and stoplight after stoplight after stoplight down University Avenue. Good time. <laughs> Except for Steve and his friend Brian, who was my uh, favorite cruising buddy. Uh, because our cars, this is, these are the cars that we had. <laughs> My car was the top one. Volkswagen Rabbit. And he drove a Chevette, which is the bottom one. We were undeterred by this, though, and we would go cruising. And so the way that this worked is you would go to the, you would go to, the, you know, you go down and, and you come to a stoplight. And there was no manual on this. Everyone just sort of accepted how it worked. You'd pull to the stoplight. And what would happen then is some, like, ridiculously expensive sports car would pull up next to you, driven by some teenager that maybe you know from school or whatever. And so you would, like, look over at him. And he would look over at you, and then it was on, okay? <laughs> Never breaking the speed limit, though. I might uh, hasten to say that for any of the young people that might be here. This is no endorsement of breaking any laws. But uh, the light would turn green, and off you would go. And, of course, when you're driving one of these, 
all you're seeing is taillights, of course, because <laughs> off they go. But as they pulled away, the thing that my buddy Brian and I would think and maybe even say was, he's driving daddy's car. <laughs> that ain't his car. That's daddy's car. We took comfort in that, okay? Well, we never heard as we were sitting there, and, you know, the windows are down. We could clearly communicate. Never had any one of these guys in the car that said, hey, guys, don't worry about it. It's not my car. It's my daddy's car. He's letting me use it. I love my daddy. (laughs) Not once. The guys, the teenagers that drive those cars, their daddy's cars, they acted like it was their car. I didn't like that. <laughs> Friend, what do you have in your life that daddy didn't give you? What spiritual advancement, blessing, accomplishment do you have in your life that God has not wrought within you. Why would we act like these things are actually ours? When the truth is, they are His, and He has done them by His grace in us and through us. How do we puff up? How do we want glory from it? How do we try to impress other people by it? Why would we ever do that? This is utterly of God. And this is what Paul is saying is if, if you've received all of this, why do you act like you have done it? Nothing could be further from the truth. So if you are here and somehow you are puffed up about the gift that you have, your appearance or something, let me tell you your face God gave you. You might be here and you might be puffed up about your money, your possessions, your success in your life. I'm here to tell you that success is something that God gave you. You might be here proud about your family or your kids and what they've done and how smart they are and how wonderful they are. Let me tell you, your family is something that God gave to you. Every advancement spiritually, every growth into the likeness of Christ, every denial of sin, all of it is sourced in God. Not in us. There is no good thing in us. So why do we act like we have done it? Here's one. Are we puffed up about our church? Hmm. You ever have this kind of an experience? Maybe you have your Bible with you or your bulletin from Sunday. You, you go to a restaurant and, and there's some other family at the local the, the table next to you or something and they see the Bible or they see your some kind of Christian paraphernalia with you and they go oh hey are you christians and, oh yes and and then of course the next question that they ask is well where do you go to church and you say uh we go to we go to bethel church and they say oh well we are longtime members of such and such church Ever have a moment like that? And you sort of get the feeling from the way that they're talking that in their opinion, their church is the only church in the entire area that God likes. (laughs) 
Apparently you have had a moment like that. Now here's the interesting thing. Do you realize how duplicit that is? Because a church that gets the gospel will be a humble church. Because the gospel humbles man. And so a church that actually gets it is a church that doesn't act like it. So any Christian that you come across that gives a sense of spiritual superiority is actually by the sense of spiritual superiority showing that they are spiritually inferior. They don't get it. And that's the irony here. The whole look at us and the church at Corinth. Whoa, we've got it all together and all of that. By just being that way, they show they do not understand the essence of the cross. So please, when you talk about our church, let's be glad for what God is doing here. Let's give him the the credit for it. And let's not give anybody the sense that we think that we're the only church that God likes in the area. Please, okay? Please. And by doing that, let's reveal hopefully the truth. And that is that we understand that we are sinners saved by grace. So what do you have that you have not received? That's the first half. I told you to read the first half, explain it. Now we've done it. Second half of the uh, passage today, and before I read it, I'd like to ask, how many of you like sarcasm? Okay. Uh, as do I. I would, I would call it my love language uh, because <laughs> if I like you, then I'm going to probably be sarcastic with you. And uh, I have run into trouble when I like somebody And so I express that in my love language. Well, that's not their love language. So sarcasm can get you in trouble. But it's a clever form of humor and argument. And that's what what Paul here. It's just dripping with sarcasm. So you have to read it that way. So let's do that now, beginning in verse 8. Paul writes to these now puffed up Corinthian Christians. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us, apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Okay, now here comes the serious sarcasm. We are fools, apostles, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things." So Paul now is is describing the experience of being an apostle, and he is comparing that to the puffed-up attitude of the Corinthian Christians. And so this is one of these passages you can miss the forest for the trees. He says a lot in this list. I'm not going to talk about everything. I want to point out just a couple things and then make sure we get the forest, what he's really saying here. Let me just touch on a couple of things. Paul describes the experience of being an apostle as a humbling one and one of suffering and trouble. Now, why is that a powerful argument? Here's why. Because to be an apostle was to be, humanly speaking, the clearest representation of what being a Christian is like. 
The apostles, think of it, the apostles were chosen by Jesus Christ himself. They lived with him for three years. They saw the cross. They saw the resurrection. They were commissioned by Christ himself in the Great Commission. They were anointed by the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And every one of them but John gave their life as martyrs for Christ. These are the same guys that in the upper room were having the whole, you should wash my feet, I should wash your feet. And then we have this radical transformation into where now they are willing to suffer horribly and to pay the ultimate price to give their life for Christ. And they did. How do you explain that? Here's the explanation. When you get the gospel, when you understand it in your soul, it creates not pride, not lordship, it creates servant-heartedness and a willing to suffer and to sacrifice for Christ. That's how you can know if you get the gospel or not. And so these apostles who Ephesians 2 says, just to quickly refer to it, are foundations, Jesus being the chief cornerstone, to be an apostle. I mean, the, the, the pinnacle human, as far as in the church position and office, was one of suffering and trouble and trial. And Paul gives a very powerful picture here in verse 9 when he says that I think God has exhibited us as apostles last of all like men sentenced to death. We've become a spectacle and we know from the the Greek words that he uses here he is referring to the ancient custom in Rome which was known as the Roman Triumph March. And maybe you've seen this depicted in movies. Rome, of course, was the big center of the uh, Roman Empire and... and, uh, when they won a great victory, what they would do is, these were the highest days in Rome, the most exciting days in Rome would be when the army would come back into the city and they would be led by the emperor and maybe like the chief general and they would come in and the streets would be packed with people and they're cheering, they're clapping and they're saying great things about them. And, and then behind them would be the other generals and the captains of the, of the military and people are cheering and clapping and waving and so excited and then behind them would be the uh foot soldiers who were the ones that really won the war and they bear the marks of being in battle and they come marching in and people are like yeah you know that's my son yeah that kind of thing and in they would come and then behind them came the conquered these were the enemies maybe the leaders of the army that were captured and others they came in chained And the people knew what to do with them as well. And they would mock them and they would throw things at them and they would mistreat them as they were making their way through the streets of Rome. And they would go all the way to the Colosseum where they would feed those men to the lions to the great cheers of all the people. That was the Roman triumph march. And Paul here says, you want to know what it's like to be an apostle? I feel like one of those condemned men at the end of the line. I feel like my life is a, I have a death sentence on my life. And he describes here in verse 11, the, uh, the experience. He says to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted. And the word there for buffeted is basically beaten with fists. Okay. And we know from his story that he was buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands and, and manual labor in that culture was looked down upon. And so he's just saying, listen, to be an apostle, it's not like you're at the front of the line where you're getting all the flowers and all the cheers. It's more like you're at the end of the line. You're last in line and you're getting, you're getting beaten and you're being condemned. That's what it's like. And of course, Paul could write about this. This was his experience. He says in second Corinthians 11 here, here, (laughs) if we had a sign up, who here would like to be an apostle? Listen to this list and then ask yourself, would you want to sign up? 
He writes this about his own life. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he concludes it now in 1 Corinthians with this statement. We have become, the apostles have become, and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Well, now that sounds nice, doesn't it? That's not something you see on many church billboards, do you? Bethel Church, we are scum and refuse. (laughs) Why? Well, that doesn't sell. We want people to be happy. We're not the end of the line, we're at the front of the line. And that is the point is that the gospel does not, you don't want to cut in, you're not looking to cut in line, you're not looking to advance yourself, you are at the end of the line, you are a man condemned, your, your, your life is not your own. And Paul just says, listen, here we are as, as apostles, we are the leaders, and yet you think you're kings. We're the, we, you think we're fools, you think uh, that, that you're wise. What? We're the apostles. Men condemned, rejected. By the way, does that sound like anybody else that you know? Rejected by men. A man condemned, of course. This is the experience of our blessed Savior, Jesus. Who Philippians 2 describes his life this way. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the, the form of a servant, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is Christianity, really? Well, let's see. The foundation stones, the apostles, what was their experience like? Men condemned and rejected, suffered, died. The hero of the story, the Savior, the Son of God. Well, certainly life must have been really great for him. Uh, No. Rejected by men, condemned, killed. And so Paul says, Corinthians, where, where do you get the idea that you are so superior. Where does this haughtiness come from? Because you live in luxury there in Corinth? Because somehow some things have happened at your church that you're proud of? Where you maybe look in the mirror and you see yourself and somehow you like yourself? Where, where, where is the basis for you thinking that you are spiritually something? And obviously the point is nowhere. You got no basis for saying that. Prideful, status-focused Corinthian Christian looks really bad when compared to the real thing. Listen, Bethel, please. Real Christianity doesn't have to puff itself up. 
Real Christianity does not have to puff itself up to be massive. It just is. We don't have to garnish it. We don't have to market it. We don't have to make it bigger than it is. It is overwhelming when properly understood and when you see it. And I'm here to tell you, I have seen it this week. I have seen it this week. This has been a difficult week. And it has been a sweet week. I've seen it. You know what I've seen this week? At the home of Kent and Bridget Elo. In their home this week, I saw a faithful Christian couple basically there the whole time. Doing anything and everything that the moment needed. I saw that. I saw this week a Christian nurse who was there late into the night, like midnight, one, two, something like that, who I assumed was just a paid nurse or whatever, but no, I come to find out she's just a Christian nurse there volunteering her time out of a love for the family. I saw that this week. I saw leading up to the front door of their home a ramp that was built by a Christian friend in this church because he loved them. I saw that this week. I saw a kinship group leader arrive around midnight just to be there. I saw that this week. I heard about a prayer vigil being organized where they were just going to stand in the yard. Not go in, not be invasive, out of respect, but They just wanted to pray for the family. And then there's Kent and Bridget. I saw Kent battle this cancer with tremendous dignity and faith. Let me tell you something about Ken Elo, and I'm going to say more about this on Tuesday. Nobody can remember ever hearing him complain about having cancer. Now, you just think about that for a moment. And think about the complaint that's on your heart about whatever. Nobody can remember him complaining about having his cancer. And to see Bridget and to see real Christianity just there. In the moment that Kent died, I was there. I think it's the first time I've ever seen somebody die. And to see the struggle that Bridget had, but the confidence in the gospel. And the confidence that he stepped into glory. And not just saying it, 
because it's the spiritually right thing to say. You can't fake it in a moment like that. She had it. She had it. Friends, listen. Real Christianity doesn't have to puff itself up. It is huge all by itself. And so what should we do? Do we glory in it? Do we put ourselves forward? No. We acknowledge that we are on the receiving end of the most amazing gift that anybody could ever receive, and that is the gift of salvation. And so what does that do? It minimizes us. It glorifies God. He gets the glory. We get the good. It's not about us. It's all about Him. It's all about Him. And my prayer and desire is that through the God's Word and through the story that our church is living out this week, that we might get it and that we might be a humble people, grateful for what God has done, but humble. Amen. Let's stand for prayer.